Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Thank you, Brandon, and thank you, Patricia, for pinch hitting today at the piano. Good job. And uh, I'll tell you, one of the great things about getting to go to be at two services uh, is getting to hear a song like that twice. And what a blessing, what a blessing. Although I have to admit, I listened a lot closer that time, Brandon, because in the first service, John Martin made an observation that I got tickled about and couldn't quite get out of my head. He said that baby Jesus was a lot cuter than baby Yoda. And uh, that undoubtedly was true, but then I got to thinking about how Baby Yoda can move things, you know, uh, with the force and stuff, and then I I got to thinking about whether, you have to understand how my mind works, right? I knew we weren't able to have nursery today because of some quarantining, and so then I thought about, was Jesus ever in a nursery in Nazareth, and did he ever see a kid take a toy from another kid? and then do that deal there and move the toy back to the original kid. So anyway, I hope the service goes better than what's going on in my mind in moments like that. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and as you turn there, uh, we're gonna put this affirmation from the Gospel of Luke up here, and it uh, definitely conveys the content that's in the Gospel of Luke. That's why we say it, so we can get this down in our hearts, the mission of Jesus that included Christmas and Easter. Say this with me. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Whew, that never gets old, the work that Christ did for us. Well, The world lost, the Christian church lost uh, a great communicator this past year, theologian, apologist, Ravi Zacharias. He went on to heaven, so we know where he's at. We didn't lose him, we just miss him. And, uh, but in one of his, I think he wrote three or 4,000 books during his lifetime. In one of his three or 4,000 books, he uh, called The Logic of God, he tells a story uh, that he had seen near him. And I wanted to start the message by reflecting on that. Ravi refers to a young lady where he lived who was born with a rare disease called CIPA, congenital insensitivity to pain without anhydrosis. Uh, Where are my medical people? Do you know what that is? If you're a medical person, some of you have heard of it, but this girl looked normal and she acted normal, except for one thing, she could not feel physical pain. She could not feel physical pain. At first, that sounds like a blessing when you think about the various pains that we experience as we go through this life, the physical pain and its sensation. But the reason it's a problem is that people with CIPA live under the constant threat of injuring themselves without knowing it. So, for instance, a person with CIPA might step on a rusty nail as they go down the stairs and not know that they've done it. 
and possibly not treat an infection soon enough that they get in something like that. Or if they put their hand on a burning stove, they wouldn't know it by the pain of it, the heat of it, and pull it away. They'd just have it there and they'd be burned far worse. I remember as a little kid looking for some cake frosting or something to eat and being high up on a counter trying to get that cake frosting. And as I slipped down, putting my hand on a burning hot stove, and boy, I felt it and pulled away and had the burn there, A person with CIPA wouldn't pull away. They would just have their hand on there like that. So this girl obviously needed constant vigilance around her because she could sustain an injury that could take her life or cause serious debilitation without her being aware of it. When her family was interviewed some years ago, the line Ravi most remembered was the closing statement by her mother. Listen to this. I pray every night for my daughter that God would give her a sense of pain. I pray for my daughter that God would allow her to know pain. Now, Ravi said after that, if that statement was read in a vacuum, we would wonder what sort of mother she is. But because more than anyone else she understands the risks of this strange disease, there is no greater prayer she can pray that her daughter might feel pain and be able to recognize what it means for her. We often wonder why Jesus let himself experience the full gamut of the human experience, including pain and death, and why his heavenly Father let him experience that pain. It part, in part it was so that any thoughtful thinking human, now or any time that's thought about it, would understand that they could never accuse Jesus of not understanding, of not feeling our pain. You need to get this in before you go through the next time of pain. The question of whether or not Jesus cares was settled on the cross. And he willfully took that pain on so that we could be with him forever. As Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says it, we're going to put this up here. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a high priest. Uh, Not a God that says, do as I say, a God who says, look what I've done for you. And every other religion in the world concentrates on the word do, D-O, and what we're learning here from the cross is Christianity is about done, D-O-N-E, what Jesus has accomplished on that cross for ourselves because he embraced the pain, endured the pain for our sake. Now, before Thanksgiving, we were looking at the arrest of Jesus and his six sham trials, three of which were before the Jewish religious leaders, three of which were before uh, the Roman leaders, the rulers there. We remember that Pilate found Jesus not guilty of anything deserving death, um, yet gave in to the mob calling for Jesus' crucifixion. How unfair, how unjust. Jesus was declared innocent, yet condemned to be executed. And of course, theologically, something greater was happening, something of John 3.16-ish magnifications. God the Father was allowing his perfect son Jesus to be killed in our place so he wouldn't have to kill us. You say, I like the word sacrifice better. Yeah, but it means to kill something instead of killing another that should be killed, right? And Jesus did that for us. Well, in today's passage, we're gonna see Jesus go from Pilate's presence to the place of execution. We call it Calvary. That's from the Latin Calvaria, Golgotha in the Hebrew. It meant the skull, and it probably meant the skull because of the 
uh, uh, skulls and bones that were laying around from previous crucifixions, maybe some still up on, there on the cross with half the flesh on the bones and things like that. We often hear how when Jesus was on the cross, he made seven statements from the cross. But today we're going to look at the only statement Jesus made on the way to the cross. Only one, and it's only shown us in Luke's gospel, which is pretty cool. So Luke chapter 23, and we're reading from verse 26 down to verse 31. It says, now as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed Jesus and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren women, wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry wood? Weep for yourselves. Let's pray. It's easy for us to get overwhelmed, Father in heaven, when we think about all that your dear son Jesus endured for us. Thank you for passages like this that turn the focus back on our response and call us to weep for our own sins and turn to the only place of salvation, to not miss our day of receiving you, Jesus, the way that that generation missed that their Messiah was with them and killed him rather than receive him. Thank you that the bigger plan that was happening was, Jesus, you willingly embracing that rescue mission for us and on our behalf. Lord, I pray that as we Think about these things, and here we're doing it at Christmas time, but we know that Christmas and Easter, Christmas and the things of the cross are so intimately acquainted because you came for this very purpose, that when all we like sheep had gone astray, your plan was to lay the iniquity of us all on him, that somehow, Father, it pleased you to crush Jesus instead of crushing us. And Lord, we rejoice in that. Lord, help us to always give that the focus it deserves. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, uh, even as we get and are moving toward this time of the cross, it's good to review the number of ways Jesus had already experienced pain, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, uh, before we get to this moment that we're in now. He had been betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, deserted by most of his other male disciples. He had been arrested at his safe prayer place, the place that he would go that was always a safe place for he and the disciples. He had been seized and bound like a criminal. He had been questioned and struck in the face, punched before the former high priest Annas. He had been falsely testified about before the high priest Caiaphas. He had been illegally convicted of blasphemy before the Sanhedrin, the official Jewish leadership body. He had been blindfolded, spit on, struck more in the face, slapped, beaten with fists, mocked and blasphemed by his fellow Jews. Then he was questioned by Pilate, albeit fearfully. He was questioned by Herod Antipas contemptibly, the contempt dripping from him as he spoke. He was mocked once more by cruel Roman soldiers, spat on again, 
given more blows to the face, stripped naked, robed in a mock purple robe like royalty. It was a cruel joke. Then he was scourged or flogged. And many of you know what that entailed. It was a whip with leather straps at the end, and on the end of those straps there would be animal bones, there would be jagged uh, stones or rocks, and they would then tie the person to a post and they'd whip them uh, no more than 39 times. And they were pretty scientific about it. They had discovered that if they went 40 or more, the person was too apt to die. So if they were going to perfectly humiliate the person they were going to crucify, they needed to stop at 39. And uh, it makes you think about Paul saying that that happened to him five different times. But for Jesus, it was the precursor to being uh, crucified. With every one of those lashes, some skin would tear open uh, and make gash wounds. We think of how uh, after his resurrection, Jesus invited Thomas to uh, put his hands where the nails had been and in his hands and feet, but in his side where the spear went. But undoubtedly, that resurrection body, maybe we'll even see it in heaven one day, uh, that resurrected body of Jesus also bears the scar marks from those 39 whippings and the crown of thorns and other things. Two soldiers usually took turns doing it because it exhausted them. Think about that. It tired them out so much, two had to be the ones doing the whipping, let alone being the one to get whipped on your back, your buttocks, your legs. Then a crown of thorn was uh, woven and placed on his head. It was another mocking thing. Kings wear crowns. He says, he's the king of the Jews. And so they made a crown of thorns and these thorns might've been as much as two inches long. And as they pressed them in, can you imagine just the pain you feel sometimes with a splinter or with a little knife prick or something like that? And yet here was these thorns being pressed into his brow and the blood would have immediately started flowing. So by this point, Jesus would have been a bloody mess from all the different kinds of beatings he was enduring. Um, then, as a final insult there, they took a reed and they smacked him on the head where the crown of thorns was on, even further giving that headache, that pain that was there from that. Jesus had been found innocent by Pilate, yet sent to be crucified while the very guilty Barabbas was let go. And Jesus endured that as someone who is omniscient. God is all-knowing, right? Omniscient. And so he knew everything about everyone that was doing that to him during that 12 hours or so. He knew everything about them, whether any of them would ever reject him, whether they'd go on denying him. And at any moment, we're told, he could have stopped it. He could have had 10 legions of angels come and put an end to it. But he did not. He restrained himself from acting to keep it from happening so that he could be our savior. And after enduring that beating treatment, he was sent to the cross, the place of execution. Well, we want to look at Simon, and then we want to look at these daughters of Jerusalem. Let's look at Simon first, verse 26. Simon bore Jesus' cross before Jesus bore his and before Jesus bore ours. Verse 26 says, as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it for and after Jesus. Woo! You talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You ever been at the wrong place at the wrong time? That's probably how Simon felt. Uh, he had undoubtedly come to Jerusalem to observe one of the feasts. Uh, and uh, it was the feast of the Passover at this point. 
And Acts 2 tells us that at the day of Pentecost, a few chapters uh, after all this in Luke's account of things, he wrote Luke and Acts, at the day of Pentecost, there were also Jews from Cyrene that were there. And Acts 6, when it talks about the synagogue of the freemen, it says that some of them were from Cyrene. Here it makes clear that he was a Cyrenian man. So I like to think about how he was probably a Jewish man of African origin. I believe Simon is the first man from Africa named in the New Testament. Cyrene was the capital of Cyrenatia. That's modern-day Libya is where that would be at, and that's in North Africa. And uh, so I think about this fella, and I wonder if the gospel had gotten to his town, or the gospel according to the Old Testament had gotten to his town through the work of Solomon. You remember when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed that it would be a place that people from all nations on earth would come to. They would hear how great Yahweh is. They'd come there, and they'd receive this wonderful information about Yahweh and want to follow him. My personal theory is that the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote most of and accumulated the rest, and the book of Ecclesiastes that talks about everything's vanity apart from knowing God, I think those were kind of like missionary booklets, missionary tracts, apologetics works. There's nothing about the temple in them. There is trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, we know the Queen of Sheba, another African-type place, had come, heard, and turned to the Lord. Jesus commends her in the Gospels, right? So maybe this was another man that the word about Yahweh had gotten to his place and he had become a Jew and he was in Jerusalem for the feast and all of a sudden he's pressed into service to do something that he couldn't imagine doing previously. Um, The authorities spotted Simon and made him carry the cross, probably the cross beam of Jesus. So get this, Simon had traveled over 800 miles to be there And now he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And of course, every time we speak like that, we're speaking from a human point of view, aren't we? Because from heaven's perspective, Simon was at the right place at the right time because he was about to have a divine encounter with Jesus that probably forever changed his life. Now, think about his name, Simon. My name is Daniel Joseph Campbell. But as Daniel, I've always preferred to go by Danny And many friends and family members have called me Dan. So you say Dan, I'll answer. You say Danny, I'll answer. You say Daniel, I'll answer. Simon and Simeon are just like that. 2 Peter 1 says not Simon Peter, but Simeon Peter. So Simon and Simeon are the same name. You say Danny, so what? Well, what happens in the second chapter chapter of Luke? A guy named Simeon, Simon Simeon, gets to hold baby Jesus, not baby Yoda, but baby Jesus in the temple. And we're told he'd been looking forward to this moment. He'd been, that the Holy Spirit had somehow revealed to him that he would get to see the Christ before he died. And here he is holding baby Jesus and he makes some startling claims. He says, hey, behold, this child here is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. And then he looked at Mary and said, a sword's going to pierce through your heart as well. In other words, you're going to have to decide as well. Everybody's got to decide about Jesus. People will either receive Jesus and be saved or they'll stumble over this message and remain in their sin. And even Mary herself would have to decide as the mother of Jesus to be a follower of Jesus. So second chapter into Luke's gospel, you got a Simon, right? What do you have in the second to last chapter of Luke's gospel? 
You have another Simon slash Simeon man, don't you? And yet this one isn't going to get to hold baby Jesus. He's going to get to hold the rugged cross that Jesus is about to die on. And, and what I really like that about that is that when we connect those two things, uh, it's very clear that usually the guilty one carried their own crossbeam to the place of execution. And it's usually assumed that the reason they had Simon do this for Jesus was that Jesus was physically unable after all the beatings to carry it himself. Maybe, perhaps. Or maybe Pilate himself did this to further indicate to the religious leaders that he found Jesus absolutely innocent. Later in the chapter, what does he do? He writes a sign, right, that's placed above the cross. They always put the crime on top. What would yours say? What would yours say uh, uh, about your wicked, lustful thoughts or about your thievery heart or your idolatry or one of those? What would yours say? Well, it, 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 you know, they always put the charge up there, murder, theft, adultery, whatever it was, they put it up there. For Jesus, his charge read, King of the Jews! It was written in Latin, that was the legal language. It was written in Greek, that was the cultural language. It was written in Hebrew, that was the religious language. And Jesus, it all comes together in Jesus, right? And I think what's happening here with the crossbeam thing is Pilate sends Jesus to the cross, not bearing his own crossbeam, but Simon does it instead as another dig from Pilate to the religious leaders that Jesus was actually innocent. The Greek reads that Simon literally took up his cross. He took up Jesus' cross. And in that sense, Simon was another thing. Simon was a stand-in for you and for me. As Simon went down that way of suffering, what Sandy Patty sang and called the Via de la Rosa, as he brought the crossbeam to the place of the cross, it may as well have been Danny Campbell doing it because Jesus was not guilty. Simon was a guilty sinner. I'm a guilty sinner. You're a guilty sinner. It very well who could have been us. The key thing is that we personally identify with what Christ did on the cross and don't just make it about what happened to him, but what should have happened to us. We talk about when a person gets baptized, they're identifying with the Lord and believer's baptism. They're saying, Lord, I'm trusting in your death and your death alone to be what takes care of my sin problem. And I'm trusting in your resurrection, the fact that you conquered the grave to be how I know that I will conquer the grave and that Steve Hancock has conquered the grave and Linda Marshall has conquered the grave and all those different things. Simon literally did what each of us is called to do spiritually. What are we called to do? Jesus has said it in Luke 9. Take up our cross and follow Jesus. Deny self. Deny what we think should happen in our lives and give our lives as an offering to the Lord. Salvation is receiving a gift, but it's also a gift exchange, isn't it? At Christmas, we like to give and receive gifts. Well, at salvation, we get the gift of eternal life. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us. We get the gift of forgiven sin. We get the gift of a reserved place in heaven. We get a new family within the body of Christ that's here and in heaven. What's our gift to Christ? The control center of our lives. Here I am, Lord. I will follow you. I won't do it perfectly, Lord, but you are my Lord and my Savior. I will follow you. It's a gift exchange as well as receiving a gift. Well, this was a divine encounter. 
It cost Simon something that day to hear the gospel story. It cost him to become a Christ follower. And if it hasn't cost you anything to follow Jesus, something is wrong with your discipleship journey. You're a little too casual about the things of the faith. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. As you declare that Jesus is the Lord of your life, he'll take you places you didn't necessarily want to go. And Simon certainly didn't want to carry that heavy crossbeam that day, and yet he was pressed into service to do it. Simon carried that cross up the hill for Jesus, and then Jesus died on that cross for Simon's sins, and it was glorious. Now, folks, I'm about as positive as I can be that Simon hung around once they got to Calvary, saw what Jesus did, and placed his faith in Jesus. You say, Pastor Danny, how can you possibly know that? Well, it's just connecting the dots. We don't know for certain, but we can connect some pretty cool dots. Simon's doing this is recorded in the other Gospels. And it's just like it is here in Luke. But in Mark's Gospel, he mentions that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he say Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus and not, if they had no idea who they were, he might say, Simon was the father of two guys named Alexander and Rufus. No, he's talking to people who know Alexander and Rufus. And we're told Mark's gospel that the very first audience for Mark's gospel was probably the church in Rome. And we'll connect those dots for you another time. But we're told the very first audience for Mark's gospel, the first ones to get it and read it, was probably the church in Rome. And that's pretty cool because in Romans 16, 13, among other things, Paul writes, greet Rufus and his mom. And so we've connected some dots there. It's entirely possible that Simon carried the cross up the place of the skull, watched what happened there, became a believer in Jesus, and his family later got two New Testament shout-outs, one at the end of of Mark's gospel and one at the end of the book of Romans, which is pretty cool. So Simon bore Jesus' cross before Jesus bore his and ours. He probably identified by faith in Christ. That's probably why that part of the story is in there and uh, makes us think about a lot of things. Well, the second part of this passage is these daughters of Jerusalem. Verses 27 through 31, Jesus told those who would weep for him to weep for themselves. So again, verses 27 through 31 there are the only saying we have of Jesus on the way to the cross, the one and only there. In verse 27, we read that a great multitude was following Jesus down that Via Dolorosa, down that way of suffering. So think about it. A great multitude that was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover that probably included a good number that the week before had yelled, Hosanna, God saves, Hosanna to the son of David, God saves, we welcome you, Lord. That probably also included others who just a couple hours earlier that morning had yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Maybe it included some people that were in both crowds. I've been in both crowds. You've been in both crowds. There was a time you rejected Jesus. You wanted to be the Lord of your own life. You didn't want him to tell you what to do. And then there's other times with a weeping heart, you've acknowledged how sinful you are. You've been so grateful for salvation and you've followed him. Many of us have been in both crowds. We read that there were women who were mourning and lamenting him. 
Uh, anytime this would happen to somebody, it wasn't uncommon to have mourners gather just for the sadness of it all. And of course, Jesus had done, healed so many people, done so many neat things, even uh, right before going to the cross, you know, that undoubtedly um, there were some that he had ministered to and they were feeling this potential loss very personally. They were overcome with sorrow for what was unfolding before them. And why wouldn't they be? My goodness, think about when we read the Bible, uh, when we read the New Testament, when we read the Gospels, how wonderful Jesus is, uh, who he is and, and what he had done. And oh my goodness, it's so uh, easy to read this account and be sorrowful that when Jesus came to his own, they didn't re- receive him. When he came to us, we didn't receive him. We rejected him. When we think about this great man, Jesus, it seems right to be sorrowful for what he went through. But here we've got the words of Jesus. Precisely because Jesus was more than a man, because he was Emmanuel, that means God with us, Jesus lets them and us know his death should invoke tears not for him, but for ourselves and what awaits us if we don't turn to him. Weep for yourselves, daughters of Jerusalem. Well, I love that phrase, daughters of Jerusalem. It occurs in the Song of Solomon, and it occurs in the book of Isaiah. It only occurs here in the New Testament, but it makes you think of Jesus' great love for the women of Israel. There's no woman mentioned in the New Testament that was an enemy of Jesus. It's one of those things you see as you go through. Jesus was never an enemy of womankind. He dignified and elevated women. And that's one of the reasons why I just love the Transworld Radio, this women of hope thing they do. I mean, it is just showing women around the world what purpose and meaning they have for their lives. And it is a great, great thing. One of the best things y'all are doing over there. Um, Here he says something somber to this group of women. First of all, daughters of Jerusalem. You like that phrase? Song of Solomon's where it occurs the most. Seven times in eight chapters, And let me show you three of them here because it's the same verse. (laughs) I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases or until it's time. Better translations say until it's time. It's in Song of Solomon chapter two, verse seven, chapter three, verse five, chapter eight, verse four. It's within the Song of Solomon, that great love story, basically saying, hey, you virgin daughters of Israel, Keep yourself pure until your wedding night. Keep yourself pure until you're with your man. Because once you go there sexually, there's some things that happen you can't unwind. So it's worth the wait because in your mind, in your emotions, in your spirit, there's some things that once activated are gonna be activated there. And of course, Song of Solomon is a great story of not only Solomon's love for his wife, but also God's love for his people. And so I think Jesus is reflecting that intense love for Israel when he uses this phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, the only time it's used in the New Testament. Well, look back to chapter 23. What's he referring at to in these verses? Chapter 23, I'm sorry, that's where we're at, isn't it? I'm getting ahead of myself here. Look at verse 28 in chapter 23. That's what I'm trying to bring your attention to. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the ones who never had kids in the first place, basically. Barren, don't have kids, wombs that don't nurse, etc. He's saying there's going to come a day where you're blessed if you didn't have any children. So basically, you wouldn't see those children suffer the unthinkable. Then Jesus quotes Hosea, 
uh, in verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Now you need to know that this is one of those things that has a double application. Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, but he also, it's got sprinkled implications for the time of the tribulation. So in Revelation chapter 6, we learn that this Hosea 10.8 prophecy also will relate to the awful time of great tribulation before Christ's return. But here Jesus is referring first to the fall of Jerusalem coming in A.D. 70 that had been talked about uh, by the Old Testament writers, but also him. So turn back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Verse 41, where your title reads, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, at least mine does, the description of the text. As Jesus draw near, he saw the city, he saw Jerusalem and wept over it. So he had cried tears over Jerusalem. He had cried tears when his friend Lazarus had died. But he saw the city and cried over Jerusalem saying, if you had known Jerusalem, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. John 1 says it like this, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Jesus said, Jerusalem, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. One thing that a careful Bible student sees as they look through the text is that it's entirely possible that had Israel received Christ when he came, there would have been no distinguishing between the Old Testament prophecies of his first and second coming. It's possible that had Israel received Christ, he probably still would have been executed by the Romans somehow and then started that earthly reign that the prophets anticipate. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. And because God is omniscient, because he's all-knowing, he incorporated into the Old Testament prophecies the knowledge that they would reject Christ, and so there would be what we would distinguish between a first coming of Christ and a second coming of Christ. I know that's a lot to chew on there. The point is, back in Luke 23, Jesus is telling them, do not weep for me and what you see happening now. Weep because your generation has rejected Jesus and what that means for your generation is Jerusalem's gonna fall like I've been telling you it would. No stone left upon another in the temple and disastrous time to have children. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. The first century historian Josephus, he gives fascinating details of the fall of Jerusalem. If you've never read Josephus' writings, at some point put it on your bucket list to do because fascinating uh, information related to the Jewish people and the time of Christ on earth and this fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But he talks about how there was terrible infighting. Jerusalem locked itself inside their city walls and there were three factions and they fought each other. The three factions became two and they fought each other. Common people, business uh, men, families, etc., got caught in the middle. They had up to three years, every city in the ancient Near East had three years of food that they could eat inside those cities, but they squandered it. They, 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 they burned it, they ate it inside. This is what they did to each other and they limited their 
their ability to protect against a siege. They squandered those things. And then Josephus talks about the overwhelming power that Titus, the Roman general, brought with his legions in uh, to do stuff with. He talks about the starvation happening inside the city, how the men would steal food from their women and the children, and eventually even babies were eaten to provide food for those that were living. Awful time, horrible time. And only what the coming Antichrist does will be worse. Warren Wearsby says it like this. Alas, it would be the women and children who would suffer the most, a fact supported by history. The Romans attempted to starve the Jews into submission and hungry men defending their city took food from their suffering wives and children and even killed and ate their own flesh and blood. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Weep what's gonna happen to your generation because you rejected your Messiah when he came. You missed it, you missed it. The last verse there, verse 31, he says, for if they do these things when the wood's green, in the green wood, what will be done in the dry, when the wood's dry? Jerusalem with Jesus, it was the time of green wood. I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. It could have been that glorious kingdom age right then. They rejected that. Jerusalem without Jesus will be dry wood, and so will you and I's life be dry without Jesus. This is uh, personal to me about this wood thing because recently I've been getting uh, branches as they fall off my trees, right? And I put them in the same place, and I didn't want to see them all winter long. So I said, well, I'm going to burn them. Now, these branches have been off the tree for some time, and there was a pile of them. And I thought, well, I've got them on top of concrete. I'll be able to, you know, shepherd them. And so they just, it burns down and everything will be good. Woo, they went up quick when the match went to the wood. Elizabeth was looking in from outside, outside. She was looking from the inside outside. She saw me out there. She said, oh my goodness, I'm about to lose my husband in a fireball, you know. And somehow we got it contained without, I got it contained without it spreading and those different things. But I saw what happens real quick with dry wood and you can imagine you've seen it too. That's what Jesus is saying here. You missed it, you missed it. Now let's bring this down the home stretch here. Let's put what Jesus is talking about in the perspective of four one-time only offers that God's made the world in history. He made one under Adam and Eve, one with Israel as it entered the promised land, this one we're looking at now, Israel, when Jesus visited, and God the Father to God the Son. The first one was Adam and Eve. Man, they were in the Garden of Eden. And they still would be today if they hadn't sinned. You ever think about that? If Adam and Eve had never blown it, then they would still be alive, their children would still be alive, their grandchildren would still be alive, and we'd get to visit with Uncle Adam and Aunt Eve, you know, or great-great-granddaddy Adam and great-great, we'd still get to do that, right? You know, all this time later. But of course, sin came into the world, they blew it, sin came into the world, and access to the tree of life was taken away. We're told when God resets things in the future, access to the tree of life will be granted. It takes the tree of death in between for that to happen, the tree that Christ died on, right? for that to happen. But the second time was when Israel was, went into the promised land. If you read Deuteronomy, it's very clear that God said to Israel as they went into the promised land, look, if you follow me out of the gate, you'll have Garden of Eden type environment in your world. You, nobody among you will have tumors. Sometimes people grab those verses out of context. That, that's never a promise for us now. 
That was a one-time offer made to Israel as it went into the promised land. And they blew it, just like Adam and Eve had. And then the time we're looking at now, Christ was here and had he been embraced, somehow the next phase of things would have begun, but they blew it. Adam blew it, his children blew it, their children blew it. And that's the way it's been in the world. But there's a fourth one. A time when God the Father said to God the Son in in eternity past, Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The Father said to the Son, God the Father to God the Son, if you will be the second Adam, if you'll live the perfect life they'll all fall short of, and if you through love will be their substitute, then here's what I'll do. Everyone down there that had been among those who rejected you, who turns into one who receives you, they'll get to be on that new earth one day with you, with access to the tree of life forever and ever. And Jesus nailed it. Where they had failed, he succeeded in living the perfect life, in dying of the substitute death, and that's why he can say, don't weep for me. Jesus is not looking for our tears, folks. He's looking for our faith. But acknowledging our sin will make us tear up. It'll make us weep for our sins. Uh, But then when we turn to Jesus, he forgives our sins when we receive him. You know, God has never turned away and never will someone who turns to Jesus, acknowledging their own sin when they're tore up from the floor up about it, and when they run to the altar like a track star, Jesus will respond to that faith and heal them. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. Simeon said, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul also. And many of us in this room had that sword pierce our soul as well. We realized, man, I'm the sinner and he's my glorious savior, amen? Refuse the salvation he offers, you receive the wrath your sins deserve, you receive Jesus, you'll receive salvation instead of wrath. But it doesn't mean it didn't get paid. Jesus himself bore the wrath on the cross. Bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.